You're listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. It really is good to be here. For the last several weeks, Lynette and I have been gone. Uh, we spent time with our family. We were in uh, Sisters, Oregon with our kids and our grandkids. Stayed in a beautiful home there. Had a blast. We went river rafting. We spent time together. Uh, my grandsons, my son and I played a little golf together. We had a really, really good time. And so it was a blessing to be able to get away, be with our family in uh, Sisters, Oregon. So it was fun. When we got home, I think the very next day we came home uh, one evening and got up 3 o'clock the next morning and we headed to the airport and we went to Atlanta, Georgia, where we were able to spend time with good friends and mentors of ours, uh, Glenn and Debbie Burris. Uh, Glenn was our former uh, president, president of Foursquare, up till a few years ago. Uh, they have a beautiful home in Canton, Georgia, so we headed there, got to hang out, and of course, whenever we get together, we, we find a way to play golf as well. So we went out and hung out, played a little golf. They have really been a blessing in our lives, and so if they're listening to this this morning, uh, we want to thank them uh, for their input and their, uh, their input to us in this church, this church community. It's a blessing. So we've had a, a, a busy couple weeks, but it's good. It's so good to be home. I mentioned earlier our church camp. Uh, a lot of fun. A lot, lot of fun. And so we enjoyed that. We worshiped together last night, a whole bunch of us, and had desserts. I don't know what people favored the most. Do you? The desserts or the worship? Maybe the kids, the, wor- the desserts and adult worship. Yeah, that's what it was. But we had, a, we had a good time. And what I want to do this morning is we're going to take just a few weeks. Uh, we're going to be jumping into a series um, on September 18th. We're going to study the Gospel of John together. But before we do that, I want to take the next few weeks, and I want to talk to you about sound bites from Jesus and what Jesus has to say to us that brings us life, transformation, many of those things you have memorized on your own. But I want to talk about those in particular. I want to talk about what Jesus says to bring us life. And he brings us freedom and liberty. So this morning, would you just bow your heads with me? We're going to pray. Father, I want to thank you for this morning, for those that are present here on the campus, those that, excuse me, are traveling home from family camp, those that are online. Uh, Father, I just ask that your Holy Spirit right now, even as we speak, that your spirit would just descend on us and that you would fill us. You would open our eyes and our ears to hear what the Lord is saying. Lord, we want to be directed by you. We want to follow you. We give our lives to you. In Jesus' name we pray. We say amen. Amen. Again, we've all heard some pretty, I think, pretty strange sound bites in recent years, oddities that are almost too hard to believe. You know, we've heard things that we have to take a second listen to and wonder, is that what was really said? Uh, I know I've had to do that, whether it's been on multimedia platforms or whether it's been in conversations. Uh, some of those things, sound bites are true. Some of them not so true. Some of them have conspiracies attached to them. So you have to listen and be careful with the sound bites that you're listening to. A sound bite is a short phrase chosen for the greatest impact. A short phrase. That's Webster says that. By the way, it's in the dictionary. I had to look that up, and it's in the dictionary. And that's really what it means, whether the impact is true, false, or somewhere in between, or just plain weird. And there are some. 
They've been around forever. Sound bites, but we just labeled them and defined them in recent years. But they've been around for forever. I mean, I remember when I was growing up, some of the weird but true things that took place. I went back to my era, and I'm going to give myself away a little bit here, uh, but looked up some strange but true things. One in 1979, a believe this or not, up in uh, I think it was Michigan, Detroit, a Burger King was burglarized. It was robbed, and it was robbed by a man named Ron. His full name, Ronald McDonald. So Ronald McDonald robbed Burger King. I don't know what he thought he was going to get at Burger King. I just don't know. It doesn't seem like they have a whole lot of money. Uh, mostly kids go in and buy hamburgers there. So, And then there's another one. Fast forward a year or so. It was when President Jimmy Carter was in office. A burglary took place in 1980. His name was Jimmy Carter. Made the headlines. That's strange, but what makes it even weirder is the arresting officer was Richard Nixon. So uh, it might have been, should have been the other way around, maybe. I don't know. But uh, just, just weird things that catch your attention. And uh, when we think about what's going on today, we just listen and we pay attention to what's happening. Jesus was a master at soundbites. Jesus was a master at just summarizing what we need to know to get through the day, to get through life. Uh, Jesus was a master at true and life-changing soundbites. I, I think his soundbites would be much different from the ones that we do here today. Uh, think about it. Soundbites of Jesus brought life. They brought transformation. They always brought hope. And so like me, I I'm, uh, like to ask questions. I, I do. And so I ask, what are some of the soundbites that you've heard recently that have helped transform you? Some of those things just that kind of hook us. And we think, okay, I want to listen to that. I want... I want that, that phrase, that word to bring life to me. And typically that's found in God's word or through a message of some sort. Maybe you're journaling and something comes up and you say, wow, I want to hold on to that. That's a good word for this season that I'm in. And we, we try to do that. We want to do that. Another question that I'm asking myself is what, what is, do my sound bites sound like? <laughs> uh, are they life-giving sound bites? Do, do they bring life or do they bring death? Do they bring criticism? Do they bring encouragement? I think it's a good thing to probably ask ourselves every time we engage in conversations. Because I, I, I know one thing for sure. My words and my actions reflect my heart. And, uh, and I want those to be purified. My heart and my words to be purified by God's spirit, to be filtered by God's spirit. And, and what, with that, what I want you to do today is turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Uh, when you're turning there, if you're already there, you, you have an idea where we're headed. We're headed to the Beatitudes. Uh, these are just brief, eight little sound bites that can change your life, radically change your life. Uh, it's here that you do find some of the most life-giving uh, words ever spoken. Now, some of the other things that had come to my mind before and after I was studying Matthew chapter 5, some sound bites of Jesus that we're all familiar with. I wrote a few of them down. How about this one? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Sound bite from Matthew 4.19. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Sound bite from Matthew 11.30. Then take upon or pick up your cross and follow me. Sound bite is Matthew 16.24. Here's one. Here's one that just just revolutionized our spirit, made us new again, uh, gave us the life that we need that we couldn't have on our own. It's when Jesus uttered those words, it is finished. 
when he said it is perfected. You don't have to and you cannot add anything or take anything away. And that is found in John 19.30. And then I love this one. I am the resurrection and the life. Boy, when you think about those words, those sound bites, they, they do change us. When we really get a hold of them. And I think you'd agree that sound bites are designed for a few reasons. One, they're designed to get your attention immediately uh, by really by the assurance and the confidence of the one speaking them. Have you ever heard anyone just really come with a lot of confidence, say something, and you're listening, and you're going, I don't, I don't think that's true, but boy, the way you're saying it, it sounds like it is. I mean, I listen to my grandkids sometimes. I, I have one grandson that, man, he comes off like bold, bold as day, and he states stuff, and it's just out there. He just says, yes, this is the way it is, and you're listening, and you're going, ah, you, boy, maybe it is the way he said it. Uh, but it can't be. That, that's not true, you know. And then you kind of challenge him a little bit. And he backs down and changes his story a little bit. But a lot of confidence. A lot of confidence. You can have a lot of confidence and not tell the truth, by the way. And so, so it comes off that. It comes off with a lot of assurance. Secondly, sound bites are designed to hook you. Uh, to lead you to a particular belief or ideology. Yeah? They do that. That's just kind of what they're designed to do. And thirdly... Sound bites can be used for selfish and negative purposes, or they can be used for selfless and positive purposes. So today we're going to look at the Beatitudes, and what we're going to see is Jesus was giving us sound bites for the selfless and positive purposes in our lives. That He's bringing to us some words that really are His constitution. It's, it's, it's really the constitution of God's kingdom is found in this introduction to what we call the Sermon on the Mount. It's really more, to me, it's more than Sermon on the Mount. We just labeled it because that's the geography of it all. If you've ever been to Israel, we take some trips when we go to the, we go to the Mount of Beatitudes, and it's just an open field, kind of like an amphitheater, where, uh, where you can really hear for almost a mile away when someone speaks on the top. I mean, it, it was just designed for public speaking. And this is the place that Jesus, Jesus introduced us to some things that, that we would want to live by. And the introduction is the Beatitudes. He's just giving us the first part of, uh, of a wonderful sermon. And so when you read this, it does make a difference, uh, makes a difference in all of us. So I'm going to take a little time. We're going to actually, uh, there are eight Beatitudes, if you looked already and counted. We are going to get through a grand total of one today. And uh, then we'll try to come back and get some more in the next week or two. But read with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 12. It says this. <clears throat> when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger, who thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice. Be glad. 
because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who went before you. What a beautiful anthem that we can follow that, that, that can, can change our life when we live this way. Now, <clears throat> you have to admit when you read the Beatitudes, they're counterintuitive. Uh, with, with every Beatitude, there is a negative reaction, typically ones I resort to. Uh, when it says meek will inherit the earth, what kind of nonsense is that? Uh, well, this is about power. This is about takeover. This is about get what you want the way you want to get it. When you read those kinds of things, it, it naturally, and in your flesh, you're thinking, wow, there's a battle going on here. There's a struggle going on here. Did Jesus really mean this? Is this, his, is this really what he meant? And one of the reasons I want us to look at this is because we have and we do live in an era where we do things that are the opposite of the Beatitudes. Um, you think about it. I mean, I was thinking about me driving down the road the other day, and I got mad because someone cut me off, and my, my reaction was not one of the Beatitudes. You know, that, it wasn't there, and I they couldn't find it there. Uh, so I, I have to pull back and think, okay, wait a minute. This cannot be the way that I live. So that statement, these statements that Jesus is making can change us. I want you to notice something in verse 1. It's good to clarify this so everybody has a good understanding. The place where it says, <clears throat> excuse me, Jesus saw the crowds or Jesus saw the multitudes. Uh, different translations have different, uh, different ways of phrasing that. What it really is saying there, it sounds a bit impersonal, doesn't it? A little distant. <clears throat> Jesus was kind of like an itinerant preacher. He came in. <clears throat> excuse me, the crowds gathered. People were there. And he just gives this message, and there's just not a real connection there. That's not what's happening here. In fact, the literal translation of this phrase is Jesus saw his neighbors. You remember where he's at? <clears throat> he's in north, northern Israel, in Judea, and he's in Galilee, and he's speaking to his neighbors, those that he spent time with, whether he was a little boy, whether it was during the first part of his ministry. He knew these people. Those people knew him. You know how much more uh, difficult or much more of a strain it is to speak to people who know you well and then to come off and say this stuff? This is a challenge. Uh, well, most of the time I'd love to speak to crowds that I was uh, not connected to uh, because you can say all kinds of things that really won't matter as time goes on. These are people who watch Jesus grow up. These are some of his relatives. These are some of his friends. And so he steps up, and the Bible says that he sees his neighbors. And I think the thing that I come away with there, and I hope you do too, is that Jesus never sees you in an impersonal way. Even his gaze on you now is not an impersonal. His gaze on you, his look at you right now, the way that he sees you right now, uh, that you are one that he loves and cares for intimately. Even though we live in a time where we feel like we're separated, where we feel like we're lonely, where we feel like we're just part of a massive crowd, just another number, Jesus never sees you that way. This has always been something that I think is, uh, is so impressive to me about Jesus being in places and crowds. Do you notice that Jesus will always pay attention to who's in front of him? I don't know. I, I grew up, I grew up in church and, and had a time where I didn't grow up in church. But the early my early days, I was in church, 
And I just remember running into different leaders, different pastors. And when I came to them, they were almost looking over the top of my head to see if there was someone else more important that was going to show up. <laughs> you ever had that feeling? Maybe it wasn't in church. Maybe it was at school or business or somewhere. It just kind of made you feel little. And I remember feeling or having that feeling and thinking, I don't want to ever do that. I, I, I want to do what Jesus does. I mean, whoever was in front of him is who he looked at, who he saw. That's why we do, again, that's why we do an internship the way we do. These are people in front of us. They're not people who are out there that maybe we wish we had. These are people who are here. You're here. We are here. And so we have community together. We look at each other. We make sure that everyone knows that they are valued, that they're important. And this is a core value of our community, that we see the people who are standing in front of us, that you see people standing in front of you. And these, these relationships, these interactions, are, are, uh, they're important. They're, they're intimate. I think that's why Jesus would talk about children and how we treat children and that we would be judged on how we love and take care of our kids. Being at family camp, there was a lot of opportunities for that, you know, a lot of opportunities for that. But just being able to spend time to interact with our kids, to be able to spend time to interact with, with people that we might not have that interaction with. I know one of my core values is try to remember names. I'm, I'm not as good as it as I used to be, but I want to really continue. To, you know, the pandemic really hurt me on that one. I mean, I, I just saw half a face most of the time. So I'm trying to, I'm really, and forgive me if I see you and I'm trying to figure out who you are if you just came in the last couple of years because all I saw was just your eyes. And I try to remember, memorize, I do, I try to memorize eyes. And so when people come up and say, hey, it's good. To, I'm glad I'm here. I'm glad you're here. How long have you been here? Two years. Oh, man. That's, uh, that's no, don't, do not take that personally. I'm just trying to pick up and catch up. Annette and I, uh, for about six or seven years, we were administrators of a Christian school. It was a wonderful thing. It was in Portland. It was a great, uh, a great school. It, it had about 90 kids when we, when we stepped in. And when we came here, we left that place. And we left that school at about 400 kids. And it was just great to see uh, those kids grow up. A lot of those kids, you're, some of you are here right now today, this morning. Um, and one thing that I've always prayed is, Lord, help me remember who they are. Even if 20 or 30 or 40 years go by, I just still want to look them in the eyes and say, oh, I know you. I might not remember your name at that moment, but I will. I will recognize your eyes. I'll recognize your, your face because uh, that's something Jesus did for us. And if you ever read through scripture, you'll understand, you see the value of remembering names. Nehemiah goes through two or three chapters of names. Genealogies, Matthew goes through names. If those names were not important, they would not be in Scripture. Now, again, some of us say, well, I've got a bad memory. That's okay. Just remember something about the person. That's always good. And so what Jesus does here is he remembers us. He knows us. We're not a distant figure in his eyes and his, in his sights. Also remember the way that Jesus sees you is not always the way you see yourself or the way that others see you. Uh, a lot of times, and I know many times, shame can... Um, I think inner, and it's like a disease of the heart because we're thinking uh, something more negative about ourselves than really God thinks about us. And so what I would say is in Jesus' name, let that shame be gone, and it can be in Jesus. 
brings you to a place of identity, brings you to a place where you understand who you are fully and you understand who he is and that relationship that exists there. And so to know that, that I have a name and he remembers my name and that I have a connection and he sees me different than others may see me. He sees me deeper than others may, may see me. There, there happens to be several places in the gospel. And if you want to do a little exercise, go through the gospel in the next month or two and just underline or mark or however you scribe on your Bible the places where it says Jesus is looking or Jesus saw. It's, re it's remarkable. Uh, he saw his disciples. That's what it says. He was walking on the seas of the shores of Galilee and he saw them. I always think that that is amazing when you read that passage of scripture, when you dive deep, when you go to a deeper dive on that one, you have to wonder, okay, if Jesus sees me and others around me, exactly what does he see? Keeping in mind, these are the eyes of God. You know, just keep that in mind. These are the eyes of God. Wow, that's, that's startling to me uh, because Jesus sees you and others with eyes of compassion and not hate. Mercy and not judgment. Grace and not criticism. Does he bring conviction? Absolutely. Does he bring correction? He does. He does. But he always does it in the context of love. He always does. His eyes will show that. He also sees our humanness. This is where it gets scary, by the way. That's when he sees our humanness, our brokenness, our loneliness, our emptiness, and our sin. He sees all of this. And I think what's so incredible about this relationship we have with Jesus is he sees all of this in detail more than we see it ourselves. And he still loves us. He still died for us. It's like, Lord, you know all these things about me. And you still love me. You still died for me. Doesn't that make your, I, I guess, the, the price or the cost of salvation even greater when you understand that? There's a, yeah, there is a discrepancy between, <laughs> between what I know about myself and the way that God actually sees me. Uh, I, I don't think I would come up with some of the same conclusions that Jesus has come up with me because, or with you. Because it would be different. But he sees us and he sees our sin. The Beatitudes are really sound bites from Jesus in response to the way that he sees us living life. If you remember that passage where Jesus is on the, the Mount of Olives and he's looking into Jerusalem, it's just days before he's going to go to the cross and, and uh, purchase us and, and take care of our sin and, and cleanse us. And it's just before that he's looking at Jerusalem. And it says he started to weep because he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. He saw uh, that they were broken. You see, the, the Beatitudes are a response to our brokenness. It's a response to the way that we live life that doesn't work. When we live life the way we want to live life, when we live life in a selfish way, the Beatitudes come along and confront that. And says, no, th this is the way that you should live. You, this is the way that you, this is the intellect of heaven. This, that's what this is. When I look at the Beatitudes, I'm thinking, this is, this is genius heaven stuff that says, 
you know, you live this way, but here's the way you should live. This is the way that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you live. And it's interesting the way he starts out the Beatitudes. He, he does this on purpose. This is a progression. Each Beatitude is connected to another if you watch it. There's a progression there, and you can follow it. It's actually probably the progression of your salvation. It, it's where it's, if you mark it, you can say, yeah, this is where I was at the beginning. And that first beatitude is, is so true about where we are before we know Christ and even a principle to live by when we do know Christ. The beatitude is verse 3. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, think about that just for a moment. Jesus is coming into the spotlight, not at least publicly. People have known him, but now he's coming in. This is his first, this is his, his maiden voyage, in essence. This is the first glance that people are going to really get at Jesus. And I read this and I think, okay, okay, so, so Jesus, this is how you begin your public ministry? I mean, this doesn't follow all the, you know, the way that you're supposed to. I mean, PR isn't working here. If you're, you need to hire someone that can help you so that you'll really know what to say and how to say it. But to start with the poor, that's probably not going to be a great big hook here. That's, that's not going to be a draw. This is his first sermon. You know, you would think that Jesus would try to impress us a little bit. You'd, you'd think that he'd bring out, you know, like go through, I don't know, maybe he wrote some sermons before he was 30, and, and he goes and pulls the best ones out, and those are the ones that he gives us, and we'd go, oh, that's really good. He doesn't do that here. He doesn't start that way. He, he starts with something a little less impressive. This, I think, could have been a little more impressive. It could have had a little more pizzazz. Blessed are the poor. Okay, really? So this is how you start Jesus' business? This is, is this how the corporation begins? Is this, is it starts with this? If this was the model used today, it would die on entry. But Jesus knows something about it. He's going to the very heart. Something that resonates in all of us. See, I, I think that, you know, when you read through this, maybe Jesus didn't really mean to say poor. Maybe he meant to say rich. I mean, that's what I understand. That's what you understand. Blessed are the rich. Because that's how the formula works for us today. We equate blessed life, a blessed life, with being a rich life. When, in fact, Jesus isn't even talking about monetary wealth. It's not what he's speaking of here. So you have to dig a little deeper to get by that. He's talking about our spiritual state of being. He's saying, this is who you are spiritually. This is who you are. Poor in spirit is when you have come to the end of yourself. It doesn't matter if you're monetarily rich or poor, but you've come to the end of yourself. You recognize you have no other choice but to ask your Father in heaven for help. So you've been hemmed in by the hound dog of heaven. You've been hemmed in by the chase of God in your life. And you're boxed in and you're claustrophobic and you don't know where to go. And he says, now start thinking about being poor. This is what it means to be poor in spirit when you go and ask for help. I might have told this story before, but when my, uh, my daughter was about three or four years old, we were headed out of the house on vacation, and, you know, we were in a hurry of two, two brothers and she, little sis, little girl. Uh, she's one of, she's my only little girl, and then I have three grandgirls, 
I call them my little, little Miss One, Little Miss Two, and Little Miss Three. So it just works out really well. I asked my granddaughter, my oldest one, uh, the other day. She's turning 16 next month. And I said to her, do you still want me to call you Little Miss? Because I don't want to embarrass you or anything. And she started crying. She goes, oh, please, always call me Little Miss. And I thought, okay, you got it. What do you want, girl? You want me to buy you a car? What do you want now? I'll tell you. Is that why you did that? Um, but I have, I have one daughter, and she's a blessing to Annette and I. And she has uh, two children and one on the way. Be here in a couple of weeks. So you get to meet a new, a new baby. But uh, she was sitting on the floor. And she was trying to tie her shoes. She's learning to tie her shoes. We were in a hurry, and we were trying to get out. And I just stepping over her with luggage in my hand. I said, baby girl, do you want me to help you tie your shoes? She goes, no. I said, okay. And then I headed out the door and came back and went the other way. You want me to help? Nope. I don't know how many times we went back and forth like that. Uh, but finally, you could see she was getting really, really frustrated. She couldn't do it on her own. And it was almost like this little cry. Daddy, could you help me? I mean, what dad isn't going to respond to that? Friends, what father in heaven will not respond to that cry of help when you say, I, I can't tie my shoes. I can't tie my shoes to save my life. I can't do some of the basic things without you. That's what foreign spirit means here. When you recognize you have no other choice but to ask for help, it's right then at that moment that you are blessed at that moment. It's when you reach a point where you realize that you are broken spiritually, that you're spiritually bankrupt, when you can't dig yourself out, you can't manage yourself out, you can't fix your way out, you can't do any of those things, and you're just where you are, and you're sitting on the floor in your own stuff. And that's when you say, I, I, I can't get out of this. Some of us might be there now. I'm sure that we are. In, re, in, in certain situations, relationships, whatever it might be, you've come to that place where you say, I, I, I can't work my way out of this. When you can't dig yourself out of that, Jesus says, blessed are you. <laughs> it's almost like he says, hey, put the shovel down. You know, put, just put it all down. And, and come to me. And, and when he says that, he says, blessed are you. This is about seeing that you are deeply in debt before God and that you have no ability whatsoever to redeem yourself. You, you, religion's not going to get you out of this. Your own intellect's not going to get you out of this. Your own reason is not going to get you out of this. You know why? Because you will tap out sooner or later. Now, some can go longer than others, but you will tap out. If you're trusting in science to get you through whatever it is, you will tap out. You will. I guarantee it. If you're trusting in your monetary wealth to get you, yeah, you'll, tap, you'll tap out. If you're trusting in other things, you will. The Bible says here we will tap out. See, this is not our ability. It has nothing to do with it. That's God's free generosity to you. That was at an infinite cost to him. Because he gave us his only son. And, and that's what the Bible says. The Bible says that's our only hope. There you go. That's your only hope. See, Jesus is telling us that when we admit, that's when we open the doors to great blessing. Uh, I mentioned earlier I had three kids, two sons and a daughter. And uh, my, my second, my son, 
uh, my second child, he and I are, are very similar in um, schooling. I, I, I struggled, probably went with some undiagnosed issues that I had to deal with as a kid. I know the teachers thought that. I'm sure they did. And um, he, he, he struggled. He really struggled. I can say this to you because he says it, and he, he's open about it. He's been open about it. But he's really, he really struggled through school um, to, to read and to write and to do all those things that I know I struggled with the same way. And I, I remember one summer, it was I think he was in fourth grade, it was summer. Favorite time of year for him and me is summer and vacation. Best time, best time. That's pri primarily because we're not in the institution, you know, over here. He and I were riding down the road over here on Grant Street right by the elementary school that he went to, and we were talking, and I just looked over, and I, I saw that they were refurbishing. They were cleaning up. They were painting the, the elementary school. And I, I said, hey, look, son, just casually, just said, hey, look, son, they're fixing up your school. And he looked at it, and he went like this. He just ducked his head like, like a vampire, you know. Ah! And he goes, why did you make me look at the school? And I said, I am sorry. He goes, it's my summer vacation. Don't make me look at the school. Don't make me think about the school. Well, as he got older, he realized that one of the things that he could do, the best thing he could do, is before school even started, he went in and told his teacher. He thought it took a lot of courage to go into a classroom and say, listen, I need a little more help. I'm going to sit in the front row. Can you help me? I mean, that's, that's every teacher's dream is that kid right there. And I was so proud of him. He started high school that way. And he went through and, and really excelled as time went on, and he's excelling now. But I thought, I thought to myself, that, that's, that's how you do it. I, I, I don't do it that way. Um, but that's, this, that's a struggle. And um, I always think about that. I think about what he, he did, and that is always inspiring to me. And the reason it is is because in our culture, uh, there's no award for those who say, I can't do it, I need help. There's, there's no... I haven't, I haven't seen a plaque lately. No one's handed anyone a trophy that says that. There's other things they give you, but not that. We don't celebrate that in our culture, and we don't, we don't put that on our resume. Uh, we just don't write, yeah, I need a lot of help. You know, <laughs> That doesn't go on there. We just try to give the best. So when you hear that phrase, and all of us have heard it, I think we've heard it before, uh, when we quote a phrase uh, that we think is actually in the Bible, God helps those who help themselves. And I've heard people quote that. Um, if you've thought it's in the Bible, I'm going to correct you a little. It's not in the Bible. It's not there. Uh, we've misappropriated the quote to the Bible. Uh, there are concepts of working and being good at it and diligent. Don't get me wrong there. There are. But that's not in the Bible. Uh, that uh, goes back away. Actually, it goes to Greek culture where it's stated back in the Greek culture. So, um, you know, I did a little homework on that, don't I? But I know we try, this is kind of our mantra. I think we have to come to the truth. And the truth here is God helps those who can't help themselves. I want you to listen to the message version. I'm going to close here. The message version of this beatitude. I like it. You are blessed when you are at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. A soundbite from Jesus that can change your life. Bow your head with me. Would you do that?
just first of all, I want to give a public invitation uh, for many of us who might not have come to that place of saying to Jesus, you know, Lord, I'm poor in spirit and I need your salvation. That's the entry point. That's that's the beginning. Uh, that's the beginning of the journey. And that's why when you read through the Beatitudes, there are uh, there's a process. There's a progression there. And the foundation of the progression is right here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And if that's you and you're here or you're online, wherever you might be, uh, if you confess that today, if you just say, Lord, I am broken, I am poor in spirit, and I need your salvation, the promise of Scripture is not complicated. It doesn't make you jump through a lot of hoops. <clears throat> it says, call in the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Salvation is yours. And so today, if you want to do that, you just call in the name of the Lord. Right after church service, when we dismiss, there will be people up front here that will be glad to pray with you and encourage you. We want that to happen uh, for you today. If you're at home, you can do that. Just in your living room, your bedroom, wherever you are, just call on the name of the Lord. And then again, if uh, you, you know Jesus and you've walked with the Lord, but you're in a, one of those places spiritually, you, you're stuck and um, you know there's no other options, then call on the name of the Lord wherever you are. Call on the name of the Lord. Father, we want to thank you today. <clears throat> you know, it's not natural for us to say that we're poor or we're bankrupt or we're broken. It just doesn't work. It doesn't fit us naturally. But, but spiritually, you say that the moment we do that, blessed are you, happy are you when you do that. So, Lord, I just pray that you would just uh, do that in all of our lives, that uh, you would uh, put yourself in front of us as that incredible example, and then the salvation that you've provided for us. We lean into you. We depend on you. Uh, we confess today that we are poor in spirit. There's no way that we can save ourselves or get us ourselves out of the jam except with you and by you. So we pray your grace and your grace is sufficient. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbefoursquare.com.